The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Look with me now at Romans chapter 6, and uh, we find ourselves in this marvelous, wonderful text, challenging text, Romans 6, 1 through 4. This is the Word of God by the Spirit of God for the people of God and to the glory of God. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old man or our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may this his word be preached for you. Please be seated. Okay, for just a moment, let's pretend like this is a small group discipleship enterprise. And if I was sitting in a small group in light of what we are covering today, this is one thing I would do. So I'm going to ask that you do it with me. Now, I want you to be ready. Don't falter. I want you to repeat what I say. All right? Here we are. This is crucial. This is crucial. You ready? All right, here we go. United... United to Christ. Would you say that with me? You ready? United to Christ. Pretty good. You ready? One more. Union with Christ. Ready? Union with Christ. If you and I can grasp this, this is the soil of the Christian life. This is the epicenter of the Christian life. This is the fixed point for the growing Christian life. And it's right here in these verses that I've read. One of the blessings of being a pastor is not only the privilege to preach God's word, but also to receive questions from God's people. Those two things go together very rapidly. You preach God's word, guess what happens? Questions from God's people. 
It usually, I don't have to wait for email. I don't have to wait for snail mail. I don't even have to wait for a phone call. They usually start in the lobby when I'm standing back there. Pastor, you said, but can I? And then here comes a question. Some of those questions are motivated with an agenda. Some of those questions are motivated for more information. Some of those questions are there to gain insight. Some are out of curiosity, but how I love them. I love them so much that I even do something every couple of weeks that shows up on the Facebook and uh, shows up on Facebook and the website called Ask the Pastor, in which I try to take a couple of those questions and do some answering for you. But they are wonderful, and last week was no exception at all. On the contrary, it was, it was as, in fact, if anything, maybe a few more questions. Last week when I began this section that we have now come to, Romans 6 through 8, I made uh, three remarks, and maybe I can remind them of you. Number one, I said something to try to get you to go back into the text to begin to read it in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14, which is where we are right now. I made the, I made the comment, this first comment to you, and I believe this with all my heart. We are in the key section of Scripture with biblical distillation of truth that is absolutely essential to your living the Christian life. Romans 6, 7, and 8. Romans 6, it's foundational truths. Romans 7, what do you do with remaining sin in your life? How do you handle remaining sin? Romans 8, how do you walk in the triumph of Christ? Romans 6, the foundation of the Christian life in Christ and for Christ. Romans 7, how do you deal with remaining sin, particularly those entangling embedded sins in your life? And then Romans 8, how do you walk in the Spirit for Christ in the triumph of Christ in this life? That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 is all about. And in that, I tried to get you to join me into this section of Romans 6, 1 through 14, because because I made a comment that Romans 6, 7, and 8, as well as any other related text to the Christian life, Romans 6, 7, and 8, the foundational text is Romans 6, 1 through 14. Romans 6, 1 through 14. I further stated, and I mean this, These verses, Romans 6, 1 through 14, are not easy. They're challenging. You've got to gird up the loins of your mind. You've got to love the Lord with all your mind. You've got to take every thought captive unto the obedience of Christ. We are not going to be Christians who refuse to think. We are going to be Christians who love the Lord not only with heart and soul, but also with mind. And this is a text that calls us to focus and think and to put our um, our spirit-enabled grasp upon biblical truth to understand it. Uh, and so this is one of those texts. In fact, I tried to illustrate it for you um, from the life of, I think, the greatest expositional preacher of uh, the 20th century, and that was Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, of course, um, I've got his multi-volume commentary series that he did, even though I was reminded after the last service, and that's accurate, that he never finished his expositions of Romans. He went to be, he had to, uh, because of the cancer issues he faced, he wasn't able to finish it. Uh, but he, he dove into it, that's for sure. And it was years and years and years he preached on it. And, um, and then, uh, and then, of course, but when he was asked before he ever started his expositional series on Romans, when he was going to start it, and he told one of his elders, uh, as they sat in his vestry, as, and they sat in his study, and he said to him, when are you going to start it? And Martin Lloyd-Jones said, when I understand Romans 6, 1 through 14. So I did get the question last week, did he ever understand it? I think so. 
Now, did he understand it perfectly? Probably not. None of us have. Uh, but he did understand it accurately, and he understood it intentionally. And it's evident because he then goes into a multi-volume commentary series that we have from his sermons over years upon years upon years. Now, remember, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached one-hour-plus sermons. And so here are, don't, don't, now don't get shaky. Don't get, don't get shaky. I'm, I'm not there. And, uh, but, uh, that's what he would do. And, um, and here's what's interesting. In Romans 6, 1 through 14, what we're taking three Sundays, he took four months. He took, he took, uh, 16 Sundays. That's what he took. And then he bemoaned the fact that he just couldn't finish it. This is, this is such a crucial text of Scripture. It's crucial for 6, 7, and 8. It's crucial for understand the, the uh, gospel-driven, saturated, Holy Spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting, God-glorifying Christian life that's lived out of joy to Christ the Savior. That's the way we live, that we don't live our Christian life to be saved. We live our Christian life for the one who saved us, for our Savior. And that foundational understanding of being in Christ. The crucial text, if you'll go back to that Romans 6 with me just for a moment, take a look at it. I want to bring you to a verse you ought to underline. Or it's a, in fact, you ought to underline all of these to tell you the truth. But, but look at verse 5. For if we have been united with him in death, remember, united to Christ. Union with Christ. If we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection life like his. Or go down to that last verse I read, verse 14. For sin will have no dominion over you. Why? You are not under law, but under grace. The superlative power of God's grace in the Christian life and the call to holiness. You just sung it. You just sung it. Our pursuit of holiness is not to be right with God. Our pursuit of holiness is because we're right with God and God is right within us. That's why. It is a powerful statement for our lives. You remember as we've been in this trajectory of understanding Paul's exposition of the gospel that Paul started it off with an interesting statement about the gospel. He said he was eager to preach it. He was unashamed to preach it. And then he gave two earmarks of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel for it. The gospel is what? The power of God unto salvation. Then he said, for in it... The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He says that the gospel is marked by the power of God and the gospel is marked by the righteousness of God. Why would he say that's good news? That's gospel. Why would he say that? Because he then unfolds for us the reason for that. And the reason for that is because all of us in Adam sinned and we are born with a sin nature, which means we are born spiritually dead, headed to the judgment of God. That's what we are. And we are not only spiritually dead, we are sinfully indicted as sinners under God's judgment. We have a heart problem. We have a record problem. We've got a bad heart. We've got a bad record. We're helpless. We're hopeless. We're unwilling. We're unable. We are dead in our sins and rightly under the judgment of God. And there is no hope in us or others. No hope in man-made religion. We are helpless and hopeless. Then that wonderful word, while the wages of sin is death, but 
the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Here we are helpless and hopeless. There is none who seek him. No, not one. There is none who understands. All have turned aside. There is none who is righteous. And then comes Christ with the power of God to resurrect us from the boneyard of sin that we are born again. And then comes Christ with the righteousness of God so that not only is sin canceled, but righteousness is granted to us from him. Our sin imputed to him, his righteousness imputed to us. His spirit comes, brings us from death unto life to Christ who takes away our sin with his atoning death and gives us his perfect righteousness so that we have everlasting life in Christ. In the in Adam, we were born spiritually dead and we were sinfully indicted and we not only had a bad record, bad heart, we had a bad life. Sinners before God. Now in the second Adam, in Christ, he takes our sins from us. He gives us his righteousness. He resurrects us and gives us a new heart with a new record. And now we got a new life. Now, how do you live that new life for Christ? How do you do that? Folks, brothers and sisters, I'm going to pour myself for this, out for this. And I know I am not adequate. But I want you to grasp this so badly. I have prayed for you and me to understand this. This changed everything for me when it was understood in my fledgling Christian life years ago. As I took the deep dive into the commentary of John Murray in this passage in Romans chapter 6. And as it was displayed for me, it was life-changing. And I believe this is a crucial text of scripture with this epic, epicenter, life-changing focal point. I am in Christ. Christ is in me. This is the hope of glory. This is, this is the very epicenter of the changed life in Christ. It flows from understanding this. Unfortunately and inevitably, Whenever the gospel of grace is preached, that God's grace is greater than our sin. You understand that God's grace didn't come back to get us on a level playing field with sin. God's grace isn't comparative to sin. God's grace is the superlative. Where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And the Apostle Paul knows, he is fully aware that whenever you preach salvation, as Romans describes it in chapter 5, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now let me be clear, Paul states it, I'm stating it, grace is never alone, it has evidences. Faith is never alone, it has evidences. And um, Christ is never alone, he brings things into our life and things change in our life, but our salvation, how are we born again? How are we right with God? That is rooted in Christ alone. We are justified and we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. I had the opportunity to walk through this with three other three people this last week. Their pushback was, but I thought faith was manifested by works. It is. But our works never navigate to our salvation. They're the evidence of it. That's what you need to understand. Grace brings a changed life, but it's not our changed life that saves us. It's the changed life that reveals our salvation. And where does it all come from? You're in Christ. And Christ is in you. At the cross, you were in Christ. Out of the tomb, you were in Christ. Ascended to heaven, you were in Christ. And now the, Jesus from the heavens has poured forth his spirit and Christ is in you. 
That's what you must understand. That's at the foundation of it. But whenever you preach this, the fact is there will be people that will twist it with two gospel heresies. One gospel heresy is legalism. The other is antinomianism. Legalism is the notion that God can't save me without me doing something for God in obedience to his law. My obedience to his law is what allows God to save me, enables God to save me, and adds to what God does to save me. That's legalism. You're not under law. Now, is there a lawful use of the law? Hang on. We're on our way. Romans 7. But it has no power to save you, and you have no power to use it to save yourself. And so legalism is a ditch on one side of the glorious road of salvation you must say no to. Our obedience does not authenticate, does not um, create the ground, the ground of our salvation. It evidences it. So, because it comes from our love to Christ. If you love me, you keep my commandments. We don't keep his commandments to be loved. We keep his commandments because we're loved. The other gospel heresy, and the one that's so prevalent, is antinomianism. That is, well, hey, what? Sin is when you transgress God's law. Well, grace is greater than sin. So if God's grace is greater than sin, then I don't need to even concern myself with the right use of God's law, the gospel use of God's law. I don't even need to concern myself. In fact, you know what? When you give this some thought, actually, I need to actually transgress God's law because grace is great. So if I got a bucket of sin in my transgression, I get two buckets of grace because there's more grace than sin. Sin abounds. Grace does much more abound. So I'll get some abounding sin. I'll tell you what, I'll go to two buckets so we can get four buckets of grace. That's what I'll do. That's antinomianism. And Paul was accused of that. Paul was directly accused of that. He is answering it. Now you know why Romans 6 starts. He knows these heresies are there. So he's now saying at the beginning, what shall we, that is professing Christians, what shall we say then? Are we professing Christians to continue embrace the lifestyle of sin? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? May it never be, he says. But I want you to, don't forget this. Don't forget it, please. If we are not vulnerable to the charge of antinomianism, then we have not preached the gospel of saving grace in Christ with integrity. If we're not vulnerable. I didn't say we're guilty, but if we're not vulnerable to the charge. In fact, you got to put Paul in one of the top gospel preachers, right? Well, he's charged with it. He knows he's being charged with it. In fact, would you take just a moment, take your Bibles, put your finger there at Romans 6. Go back already. What is he said? Go back to Romans chapter 3 and verse 8. Just go back to Romans 3. Look at what he says here. Go down to verse 8. And he says this, and why not do evil, that is sin, that good may come? Why not sin, that the goodness of grace may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, well, their condemnation is just. In other words, he was already charged with this. So if we are not vulnerable, not guilty, but vulnerable to the charge of antinomianism, then we have not preached the gospel with integrity. And if we have not answered the charge of antinomianism with passion, then we have not preached the gospel with clarity and fidelity. Paul is charged. Now Paul answers and we've got Paul's answer in chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. He answers three ways. 
Paul gives an emotional response in verses 1 and 2. Paul gives an instructional response that we're looking at this morning in verses 3 through 11. And then he gives a, um, and then he gives a directional response in verses uh, 12 through 14. Now, by the way, there's one other thing I said last week. Don't forget it. I want to try to encourage you to do some study uh, for the, uh, this section. Here's what, in this section, Paul does something radically new that he has not done yet in five chapters. What happens in Romans 6, 1 through 14, that he has not done yet to this point? See if you can find that. A couple of weeks, we'll find it together, right here in 6, 1 through 14. But right now, I want to remind you of his emotional response. The authentic Christian, whenever the gospel is misrepresented, whenever it is blasphemed, whenever it is assaulted, then the Christian comes to the defense, not only with precision and accuracy, but with passion. And Paul reveals that. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He answers the charge of antinomianism with a passionate malediction, with a passionate declaration. It's translated in your English Standard Version, by no means, and that would be grammatically correct. But what I love is the NAS translation that gets the sense as well as the grammar. And I love it in the King James Version. God forbid this. God, it's an anathema. God forbid that this be true. We would never say that. We do not say that. You are twisting what we're saying to say that. And so there is an emotional response. Brothers and sisters, um, when you know truth, truth evokes emotion. Paul does not have a theological cool detachment from biblical truth in general and the gospel in particular. No, no. When Paul preaches the gospel, he says, I'm eager. When Paul defends the gospel, he is passionately declarative. God forbid this heresy and error that leads men and women to the judgment of perdition. He is not detached. He's not just a spectator. And there are some of us who have a penchant and a desire to be accurate theologically. Well, if we are being accurate, and if we're grasping what it's saying, then we ought to be the most passionate and emotional. Yes, under the leash of the Holy Spirit, self-control. But fully engaged in the heart, as well as the mind. Now he goes to the theological underpinnings, And instructs them, Paul's instructional response to the mind, as well as then later Paul's directional response to the will. But now he goes to them, you want to know why I've got such passion on this? Let me tell you why. And he gives you the doctrinal theological foundations that his life is built upon, that he wants your life built upon, united to Christ, in union with Christ. And where does he start teaching us? He goes to the God-ordained and designed new sacrament, sign and seal of the new covenant. Baptism, replacing circumcision from the Old Testament that's fulfilled in Christ, and now comes baptism. And he goes to baptism, not because baptism saves you, but because baptism is is a this he's not giving mode he's not giving efficacy as baptismal regeneration what he is doing is going to the theology of baptism what does the sign and seal of the outpouring of the holy spirit and the sprinkling of the blood of christ in the covenant of grace what is the theology what is it declaring to you he says this is what it's declaring And then he begins to unfold it. 
his doctrinal beginning with this display of doctrine in baptism. Look what he says in that verse. Do you not know? Now, by the way, don't miss this. Do you not look at verse three? Do you not know? Go down to verse six. We know. Go down to verse nine. We know. Go down to verse 11. Consider. He is giving us instructions of true theology so that our life, while emotional, is not built on our emotions. It's built on truth. He's giving the truth to the mind that fills the heart with passion. And he starts with by just taking baptism itself. How can we, after saying, how can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes to, to the illustration of it in baptism. Do you not know that all of us, that is believers, who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. You're not, you're baptized into Christ Jesus. The baptismal formula is declaring in the name of the Father and the Son that we are united to Christ. That we are united to Christ. We were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. Why? In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, Christ, death, we died with him. Christ's life, resurrection, we live with him. When Christ died, we died. When Christ was raised, we are raised. Furthermore, when Christ ascended, we ascended with him, united to him. He goes on to explain it in the next verse. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we not only, not Christ not only died for us, we died with him. And Christ was not only raised for us, we are raised with him. He brings it home even more in verse 6. We know that our old man, our old self, was crucified with him. He nailed our sin record. He nailed our sin and its dominion to the cross. He canceled the power of sin. And when he died for our sins, we died with him to our sins. When he was raised for our life, we were raised with him. We know that our old self, our old man was crucified with him. Why? Purpose statement. In order that the body of sin, the entire mass of sin, its power, its guilt, its shame, in order that the, the body of sin might be brought to nothing. It no longer has dominion. It's not if you live good enough for Jesus, it won't have dominion. No, you can now live for Jesus because it has no dominion. When he died for your sins, he died to set you free and you died with him to sins. We died with him in Christ. So that, here's what he says, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Why? Here's the ultimate purpose. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. He has emancipated, with his death for us, we died with him and he emancipates us from the dominion of sin's guilt, its shame, and its power. Before the sin nature. I like the way one guy said it. I don't know who to give credit. 
Before original sin in Adam, Adam and Eve had to be talked into sinning. After Adam, no one can talk us out of sinning. But in Christ, I don't have to sin. Its dominion and power has been broken. Its guilt banished. Its shame eradicated. Its power broken. I've, sin is not dead to me, but I am dead to sin. Sin still has that principle of an old man living in us. How do you handle it? Stay tuned, Romans 7. But foundationally, you're in Christ. When Christ died for you, you died with him to sin. And Christ has delivered you from its dominion. Not you're free from its guilt and shame and power if you do good. No, because of his death that he died and we died with him. That is why we have been set free in Christ. And he begins to teach it from this God-ordained and God-designed new covenant sign. Sign, sign means signify. It's there to teach something. Paul's telling you this is what bapt- this is the theology of baptism. It's teaching you Christ died to sin. You're united to Christ, so you died with Him to sin. Christ was raised. You're united to Christ. Therefore, when Christ was raised to a new life, you are raised to a new life in Christ. One day your body will be raised to a perfect life in Christ. So now you have been set free from sin. Look at the next verse. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You're not only justified and forgiven, you're born again. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. You not only died with him, you live with him. For the death he died to sin once and for all. Away with this notion. We're going to gather and re-crucify Christ in communion uh, in, the, in, the, um, in the Lord's table. No, 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 no. Away with that. The death, the atoning death of Christ was 2,000 years ago. Once and for all, and his resurrection declared its victory. He doesn't die again. He died once and for all. And when we were with him, united to him, we die to sin. Its dominion is no more because of him, not because of us. He died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God, and that's the life we live now. I love the phrase, since we're on the verge of Ligonier, that R.C. challenged us all. Coram Deo, we live to God under the eye of God. We don't live for salvation. We live for the God who saves us and who has saved us. Whom we're united to. We're right with God. And God is right within us. When he died, we died. When he was raised, we were raised. Therefore. So now they says. Now look what he says. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Okay. I am not trying to to pick on the English Standard Version. But I'm going back to the King James and the NAS one more time. Ready? Here's what it says. I love this verse. So you also, present tense, right now, you got a new heart, you got a new record, now in your new life. You in this new life must reckon yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now there's a lot of characters on movies that have been talking about reckon. I'm using it in its classical sense. Reckon means something you have to deal with. But reckon also means how you set a journey and a trajectory. Mr. Navigator, we want to fly to Los Angeles. Just a moment. Let me get our reckonings. 
Mr. Helmsman, set the reckonings as to where this ship is going. Every day, you and I need to come back to union with Christ, dead to sin, alive to God in Christ who's in us, and establish the reckonings. Every day. This is the foundation. This is the epicenter. So here's the takeaway. An authentic Christian has died to sin. I'm just going to have to read these because I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm at the end of my time. An authentic Christian. Last week we said an authentic Christian does not dismiss passion, but is passionate. Now we understand why. An authentic Christian has died to sin. Now again, sin has not died to you, but we have died to sin. And we live to God. Now the world, the flesh, and the devil don't want us to live for God. We've got adversaries. But we start with a reckoning. And the reckoning is in Christ and Christ in me. I have died to sin. I live to God. Why? Because of our grace secured union with Christ on the cross from the tomb and into the heavens. When he died on the cross, I died. When he was raised, I was raised. And when he ascended, I ascended into heaven. This death of Christ, here's what the world tells you about the death of Christ. It's unthinkable. You know what we say to them? The death of Christ is not unthinkable. The atoning death of Christ is not unthinkable. It is unstoppable. He will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. The world looks at the resurrection of Christ and says, that is impossible. We say to the world, oh, you're right. It is impossible, but you got the wrong impossibility. It was not impossible for Christ to rise from the dead. It was impossible for death to keep him from rising. It was impossible for the grave to hold him down. And it is impossible for you to stop God's grace changing my life for this Savior who died for me, who was raised for me, and who has now at work within me. His grace is greater than your sin. I am united to him by his grace. His death is not unthinkable. It's unstoppable. His resurrection is not impossible. What's impossible is for the grave to hold him back. And his ascension is not wish fulfillment. His ascension is the assurance, I'm with him, he's with me, and one day I'll be with him, like him, and I will reign with him because I'm in him and he is in me. Christ has died for you. That means you have died to sin with him. Christ is resurrected to life for the glory of God. You have been raised up with him to live to the praise of his glorious grace. Christ is ascended to heaven. You are ascended in him and assured that on that great day you will be with him, like him, and reigning with him. Our daily life is a reckoning. I'm dead to sin in Christ's death. I'm alive to God in Christ's resurrection. I've got a new heart. I've got a new family. I've got a new home. I've got a new record. And now I've got a growing new life. You can even start with your baptism. There's a great place to... I'll just come back to where he starts. I'll take you to baptism. You understand, baptism is the sign and seal of the covenant. You understand, covenant ceremonies are naming ceremonies. Yesterday, I did a covenant of marriage right here. 
And the two people walked out. I introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. A name was changed. That was a glorious truth. You sit over here and you watch believing parents, believing God's promises, bringing their children into the covenant, naming their child by the direction of God's word. Covenant moments are naming. And when we're baptized, I've got names from creation and providence. I'm Harry Reader by I'm a, I'm a man by creation. In God's providence, I'm Harry Reader. In, I'm an American in God's providence. I've got, I've got identities and names in terms of God's creation and in terms of God's providence. But when I am baptized in the name of Christ Jesus, there is the name above every name. I am no longer an American. I am a Christian American. I'm not an American Christian. I am a Christian American. The adjective controls the noun. I am a husband, a Christian husband now. I am a Christian father. I am a Christian citizen. Christ names me. And I am named by him. All other names in creation and providence are now modified by the supremacy and preeminence of Christ. I am his, he is mine, and I am named by him because of his grace and for his glory. And those things that used to name me as a sinner, those things I don't want named among us and I don't want them to name me. I'm not a promiscuous Christian. I'm not a gay Christian. I'm not a thieving Christian. I'm not an alcoholic Christian. I am a Christian. I may have indwelling sins to deal with, but those things don't name me. He names me. I'm in him. I'm his and he is mine. And that's why we pursue holiness because we're his and we love him. Who gloriously loved us. Can I go back to the marriage thing again? And this is where I'll end. I promise I'll end right here. I promise. I got married. 53 years ago. Almost 54. We had a three day honeymoon. I don't know how we afforded that. But we got a three day honeymoon. We came back. And when we pulled into Charlotte. We went to Sears and Roebuck. Where she had worked for my mother. And I had met her. And my mother was there. So we stopped off and said hello to mommy. And when we got there. Some friends of, uh, some friends of mother came up and said. Oh Ike. I heard something important has happened in your life. I said yes I'm married. Here is my wife. Cindy Miller. You would not believe how quickly the frost came to the room. I felt eyes upon me that were not loving, but glaring. And she looked at me and said, reader. I wish I could tell you that's the only time I made that mistake. I needed to do some reckoning. Every day I need to remind myself, you know, one of the things I did. This wedding ring, I made a commitment, it'll never come off my finger. Now, it has come off one time, open heart surgery, but I told him, as soon as you pull that tube, you put that ring back on. And I finger it. And I display it. I need to reckon using that sign and seal of that covenant, that public sign and seal. Baptism, I'm washed. This... The filth and dirt and grime of sin is taken away. But any time, that's what baptism means. It's a ritual washing. Any time you're filthy and you get washed clean, something else got dirty. And when Jesus washed you, he took The filth and shame and dirt of our sin 
on himself. And I need to reckon myself dead to that sin in Christ and because of Christ. I read about Alexander the Great. You know, the great conqueror, politics, military, everything. You know, you know about him. Died in despair in his youth. One day he was asked, why are you so successful? Why are you so dominating? He said, I can tell you why. He, re- he, re- he remembered this event and it affected him his whole life. His dad caught him doing something wrong and his dad said to him, Alexander, change your behavior or change your name. I got good news for you today. Jesus says, I'm changing your name. And that's what changes our behavior. We're his. He's ours. He died for us. We died with him. He was raised. We are raised with him. I am his. He is ours. Come to him. And go serve him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments in your word. Holy Spirit, I would just ask that you speak to hearts as only you can speak. Those here who maybe uh, it's just we constantly think it's something we do instead of what he did for us and now we do what we do for him father help us every day to reckon help us to just to sense the glory of the name changing power of Christ's redemption that we're his and we died with him the one who died for us. We're raised with him, the one who was raised for us. Now we walk with him and for him to the glory of God because we love him who has saved us. We are in him and he is in us. And that is the hope of glory. Oh God, fill us that our passion, while directed by the Holy Spirit, would be propelled in life because we know we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ his death and resurrection in Jesus name amen you have been listening to a message by Harry Reader senior pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham Alabama For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.